Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 38. I wonder how many of us have had a close brush with death. Maybe you had a serious illness that you really faced the prospect of death, but you were spared. You came back and resumed your normal activities. Maybe you were in a plane crash. Maybe you were in a car accident. Whatever it was, you you faced a really close brush with death. In our study of Isaiah, we come to such an experience on the part of King Hezekiah, one of the great kings and good kings of, of uh, Judah. And we have here his recovery from an illness where he faced death in verse 1 of chapter 38. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set your house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. He was sick. We're... told elsewhere that he had a boil, or a little further on in this passage. A. Rendell Short, in his book, The Bible and Modern Medicine, he's a surgeon, uh, says that possibly this was a carbuncle on the back of his neck, or anthrax, which is a disease that we can catch from cattle. At any rate, God says to him, set your house in order, because... You're going to die. Set your house in order. When is a man's house in order? Spurgeon has a sermon on this. Spurgeon says, you notice he pictures life like living in a house. Well, who's the land, who's the house owner? Who's the landlord? Uh, Obviously, uh, the Lord and not us. We're tenants. He's the landlord. And uh, the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. Now, what is man's lease? How long a lease do you have on this house that he owns? And most people act like they've got a 999-year lease, don't they? But you might receive an eviction notice tonight. Only the Lord, uh, the owner, only as long as he decides that you live in it. You remember the rich fool that said to his soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be? I imagine that rich fool was an officer in the church prominent man like that, he probably believed in God. But he was a practical atheist. His faith didn't affect the way he lived. Uh, The rent, what's the rent on the house? Uh, That we should serve and worship the Lord God. That's the rent. 
And the duty, set your house in order. What's involved in that? Obviously, number one, being right with God. Through true repentance and faith, turning to Him, acknowledging my guilt, uh, that I'm an undone sinner. Woe is me, for I'm undone, said Isaiah. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I need a Savior. Turning to Jesus Christ as the only Savior. There's no other name given unto heaven among men whereby we must be saved, saved, says Peter. Turning to him, believing his claim, his gigantic claim to be God become man, to have died for our sins. The evidence for those claims is resurrection. Believing that and then committing our lives to him. That's setting our house in order. True repentance. True trust in him to forgive me as a gift based on his death. And then <clears throat> setting our house in order would uh, involve, of course, trying to make uh, provision materially for our family in the event of our death. Having a will, etc. But what about provision for our family to walk with God? Surely our house is not in order if our children don't know him. I never will forget uh, a gentleman that it was my privilege to lead to Christ some years back. And almost immediately after that, he discovered that uh, he had a disease that was going to produce his death within several weeks. His frantic concern for his teenage boys. And uh, on his deathbed, gripping my hand and saying, I put them in your charge. You are responsible for my sons. <laughs> I can't really be responsible for his sons. His house was not in order. He waited too late. Suppose that message that was given to Hezekiah was given to you. Set your house in order. You shall die and not live. Is your house in order? Uh, Harry Blemeyer's, in his book, The Secularist Heresy, he says, uh, the claim made here is that failure to accept the finitude of the finite is the highest common factor in the varied states of mind which breed indifference to the religious issue. He says the fact that men don't really face that they're finite, that they're going to die. And it could be tomorrow, it could be today. The fact that they don't face that is the biggest factor in religious indifference. The man of learning who is too interested in his specialized research to think about religion. The laborer who is too interested in darts and beer. The clerk, who is too interested in football pools. The statesman, who is too interested in party policy. The shop girl, who is too interested in films. The company director, who is too interested in higher finance. They all have this common element in their prevailing mental visions. That man's finitude is not present to them as a realizable fact. This does not mean that they have each and all failed to take a particular philosophical view 
of the human situation. It means, rather, that they have failed in any kind of way to absorb into their mental systems the sense of humanity's imposed limitations. The precariousness of health, wealth, and life itself is brought home at some point to every human creature. It would seem that in every department of human experience, the challenge of finitude uh, comes in a moment appropriate to that department. As a scholar cannot escape the challenge in an intellectual form, so the businessman cannot escape it in the shape of insecurity, of the insecurity of worldly prosperity and the failure of possessions to satisfy the soul. The doctor meets the challenge in the spectacle of suffering and death. The soldier and the manor meet it in the daily risk of their calling. The farmer meets it in his dependence upon nature. The mother meets it in the pain and danger of birth. The parents meet it in the vicarious risk of their children's expanding freedom. We can only conclude that the bulk of our contemporaries never absorb the fact of finitude into their systems at all. The challenge meets them in the diverse modes which have been illustrated. But they turn away and harden their wills against it. They refuse to think seriously about the fact of death. Well, Hezekiah prays. His supplication. We see the, the sickness and the statement, set your house in order. Now his supplication, his prayer. In verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Now, he's not necessarily pleading his merits here, although he mentions this. But notice that phrase, I have walked before thee in truth. That phrase is lifted from a promise that God made King David years before. God told David, if your descendants will walk before me in truth, you will never lack a man, a descendant, to sit on the throne of this nation. Hezekiah doesn't have a male son, doesn't have a male child at this point. If he dies at this point, that promise won't be fulfilled. And he's reminding the Lord of that. Lord, remember that promise that you made to David? Well, I have walked before you in truth, and I don't have a son to sit on the throne after me. Now, it's interesting that he could say, I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart. Not that he hadn't sinned, but I have truly sought to walk with you. And he had. You read the record. He was an outstanding king. And when when he came to the throne, the nation was in terrible shape. Religiously, 
And he set about to bring about reformation in the nation. He destroyed the false idols. Uh, he did away with the priests who were misleading the people. And so on. He was serious about it. Could you say if the message came to you, set your house in order, could you honestly say, Lord, you know that I have walked before you in truth, that I have really sought to serve you. And Lord, I want to ask you to give me some more years because I have some things that I feel I'm in the middle of, that I need to accomplish. Could you, could you say I've walked before you in truth? Well, that's his, that's what he urges, but as you read this, he wept sore. You have a feeling that something more is involved than just his concern about not having a son. You get the feeling that he is afraid to die. And that sort of shocks us. Because we're not used to our biblical heroes being afraid to die. Think about Paul. Paul, uh, when faced with death, said, uh, To me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm in a strait between two things, whether to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, or to remain here with you, which is needful. He says, we know that if this earthly house of this tabernacle is dissolved, we have a building with God, not made with hands. He has no fear of death. And yet Hezekiah seems to have a fear of death. Well, we need to remember that Hezekiah was living prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Now, that doesn't mean that in the Old Testament they didn't have insight into uh, the fact of life after death and of the blessedness of that estate for the true believer, the awfulness of that estate for those who are not true believers. Uh, Abraham, way back, Abraham lived in a tent all of his life in the land of promise, the land that God had said to him, I will give you this land for an everlasting possession. But he lived in a tent in that land. And the New Testament tells us he did that to declare publicly that he was a pilgrim. It says, for Abraham looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham knew this wasn't his world, this wasn't his home, this world wasn't. He's passing through and he's going to an eternal city. And he was declaring by the way he lived in a temporary resident that this wasn't his home. And that he was looking forward to that eternal city. And God's not ashamed to be called his God, says Hebrews 11, because he's prepared such a shit city. He ought to be ashamed if there's no such place. Because he created those hopes in Abraham's heart by his promises to Abraham. Exactly. There is such a city. And Abraham believed in it, looked for it, saw it by faith. David... David said, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The author of the 73rd Psalm says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? What do I desire on earth beside thee? He said, you have holden me by my right hand, and afterward you will receive me up to glory. 
Job said, I know my Redeemer lives. And that after worms have destroyed this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. So you have in the Old Testament this hope of eternal life with God. But at the same time, you don't have the Son of God present in physical form, dying for our sins, going into that tomb and then rising in the empty tomb. That sort of crystallizes the whole thing and gives a clarity to it and a force to it that living this side of the cross and this side of the empty tomb, we can have an assurance that many of them didn't see quite that clearly. Well, we see his sickness, the statement of God, set your house in order, his supplication where he's asking God to give him some more time and then the salvation from death that God granted in verse 4 then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying and when you read uh, 2 Kings 20 where this is also discussed you find that as Isaiah is leaving the king's presence and the king is praying the word of the Lord comes to him in the middle court saying go back and tell him this go and say to Hezekiah thus says the Lord the God of David thy father. Notice, he said, you mentioned that promise to David. Well, I am the God of David thy father, and I have heard you, and I will grant you additional time. I've heard thy prayer, I've seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. Here's a man who knew now how long he would live. Anybody else here know that? This man knew he would live 15 more years. God grants this. And uh, that gives me a problem as a Calvinist. That give you any problem? I mean, we believe in predestination. We believe the whole thing's planned out. Did God change the plan? Let me, what do you do when you hit a problem? Look up Calvin. What does he say? Here's what he says. I may be thought strange, it may be thought strange that God, having uttered a sentence, should soon afterward be moved to reverse it. For nothing is more at variance with his nature than a change of purpose. I reply that while death was threatened against Hezekiah, it was not decreed for Hezekiah. We must therefore suppose a condition to be implied in that threatening. For otherwise, Hezekiah would not have altered by repentance or prayer the irreversible decree of God. Compare Jonah being sent to the Ninevites. God says to Jonah, go to that great city Nineveh and cry against it. Jonah finally goes, and as he walks down the street, he had a great sermon to preach. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Man, what a sermon. Forty days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And the king, down to the lowest peasant, truly repented. And God relented and didn't destroy the city. And Jonah is very unhappy and goes and sits under a gourd to see if God won't change his mind and go ahead and destroy the city. Real upset. And he says to God, I knew this is what would happen. 
I knew if I came over here and told them that 40 days in the city would be destroyed, that you were merciful and that you would forgive them, they would repent. That's why I didn't want to come. Uh, well, uh, the whole purpose of sending Jonah with that warning was so they would turn and God would not have to destroy. Calvin says God threatened the death of Hezekiah because he was unwilling that Hezekiah should die. T.C. Hammond, a British theologian, uh, says uh, that there, there's an Indian cult that, uh, two different Indian cults that have two different views of the divine way of planning things out and carrying out the plan of predestination. And one view is what you could call the cat theory, and the other view is the monkey theory. The cat theory has to do with how the cat carries its young. The cat picks the kitten up by the nape of the neck and carries him, and the kitten just hangs there helpless and is being borne along in life by the cat. But the monkey has the baby monkey hang around its neck. The baby monkey's arms are twined around the mother monkey's neck. And as the monkey moves along, the baby monkey is cooperating uh, with the movement and the plan. He says, we believe in the monkey theory, the monkey kind of predestination, where man is not inactive in the moving forward of God's plan. God's plan will come about, but man is not inactive. Had Hezekiah not prayed... He would have died. But Hezekiah did pray. And it was the plan of God that Hezekiah would pray. God said to Ezekiel about the nation, He says, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I'm going to do it, but they must ask, and then I will do it. God gives a sign. When Isaiah goes back in and announces, you're going to have 15 more years, he says, just to reassure you of that, that that really is the word of the Lord, God has said you can ask him any sign. Uh, what would you like? Would you like the, the sun to go forward 10 degrees on the sundial suddenly? Or would you like the sun to back up? And the fact that he's given that choice is brought out over in Second Kings. And uh, Hezekiah said, well, it's not hard for the sun to go forward. It's hard for the sun to back up. I'd like it to come back. And uh, so that's what happens. Verse 7. Uh, <clears throat> it says, uh, This shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees, which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees, by which degrees it was gone down. God does a miracle here. This was the beginning of daylight saving time. How did God do this miracle? Uh, we don't know how God did the miracle. It could be that it was a miracle of refraction. 
of the refraction of light without the sun or anything having to actually back up. F. W. Farrar, in his commentary on Second Kings, mentions that Pierre Ramuel, prior of the monastery at Metz, noticed in March on March 27, 1703, that the shadow on his sundial deviated an hour and a half, apparently due to refraction in the upper atmosphere. However God did it, this really happened, but let's let this be a symbol. Let's let it be a symbol of God backing up the time of Hezekiah's death. You could say that the clock on Hezekiah's life had reached midnight, one minute to midnight. And Hezekiah prays, and God backs the clock up and gives him 15 more years. Maybe God's backed up your clock. When you face death, when you were real sick, or when you were in that car wreck, or you were almost in that car wreck, maybe God backed up your clock. You remember the parable of the barren tree, where uh, the owner of the vineyard says, cut it down to the vine dresser. Why should it cumber the ground? Why should it take up space? It's not doing anything. It's not bearing any fruit. And the vine dresser intercedes and says, No, let me do a little more for it. Let me dig around it and water it, fertilize it, and, and give it a little more time and see if it won't bear fruit. And if not, then we'll cut it down. Maybe God backed up your clock to see if you'd bear fruit. Bear fruit in terms of coming to him. To begin with, if you haven't done that. Or if you've come to him, but you're not living for him as you ought to. Remember, Paul talks about Christians who are Christians, but who build on the superstructure of Christ with wood, hay, and stubble. They're not living for the Lord as they ought to. The businessman's far too taken up with his business. The sports person's far too taken up with his sports, etc. And materialism whatever it may be that your particular thing is. Maybe God's backed up your clock to give you time to set your house in order. How is it with your kids? Maybe setting your house in order has to do with, uh, uh, with <clears throat> some business partner that you need to witness to. Maybe your father or mother haven't come to Christ. The significance of uh, the figs. At this point in verse uh, 21, Isaiah had said, Let them take a lump of figs and lay it for a plaster upon the boil, and he shall recover. And so uh, God uses means often in his healing. Well, we have there this record. But then we have a record of how Hezekiah felt while he was sick, when he was facing death, before he was told that he had 15 more years. And then I felt when he was told that Hezekiah wrote down his feelings. 
in uh, verse 9. The writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of his sickness. Here's how he felt his attitude toward death during his illness. Verse 10, I said, in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of the residue of my years. He said, uh, I'm going to go to the grave and the gates are going to close and that's going to be it as far as this life is concerned. I'm finished. And he said, I'm too young. I felt deprived. I am deprived of the residue of my years. Hezekiah was 39 years old when that happened. He would no longer see God in this life or his friends. Verse 11, I said, I shall not see the Lord, even the Lord in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. No more opportunity for service here. Uh, his attitude toward God during his illness. In verse 13, I reckon till morning that as a lion, so he will break all my bones. He felt like God was a lion who was pouncing on him. But he also cast himself on the mercy of God. In verse uh, 14, uh, he says, like a crane or a swallow, a swallow, so did I chatter. I did mourn as a dove. Mine eyes fail with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Undertake for me. He cast himself on the mercy of God. And then uh, God answers. Incidentally, it may well be that all this happened to bring him to that point of utter helplessness and hopelessness apart from God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he had the sentence of death in himself, that he might not trust in himself, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. We were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life, he says, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Annie Johnson Flint put that in a little poem. Pressed out of measure and pressed to all length. Pressed so intensely it seems beyond strength. Pressed in the body and pressed in the soul. Pressed in the mind till dark surges roll. Pressure by foes and pressure by friends. Pressure on pressure till life nearly ends. Pressed into loving the staff and the rod. Pressed into knowing no helper but God. That's where he wants us. Pressed into liberty where nothing clings, nothing else matters, except serving him. Pressed into faith for impossible things. Pressed into living a life in the Lord. Pressed into living a Christ life outpoured. God has to bring us to an end of our own resources. So he will be our resource and we'll depend on him. His attitude toward the future. In verse 15... He says, what shall I say? He has spoken unto me, and he hath done it. He's given me these 15 years. I shall go softly all my years. I will walk humbly before him. And uh, in the bitterness of my soul, I'll be truly repentant. His attitude towards the cause of his near death. 
verse 17. Behold, for peace I had bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. He connected his sickness with sin. He felt like in his case, God had brought this to him for some particular sin. Although the general trend of his life had been one of walking with God, there had been some sin that he hadn't dealt with, and that this had come into his life because of that. You read over in 1 Corinthians, For this cause, many of you are weak and sickly, and some have died. Speaking of sin in the life of those Corinthian Christians. And so he says, I turn from... This thing that I know is wrong. And I trust you. You've forgiven my sins. And we know how God forgives through Christ. His attitude toward the present. Verse 18. The grave cannot praise thee. Death cannot celebrate thee. The living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this day. The father to the children shall make known thy truth. God, I will praise you and live for you. And I will make your truth known to my children. I will do that now that you've given me this additional time. Well, some of us present are in sickness or in trouble. And uh, you feel maybe that God is a lion toward you. Go to him in prayer and lay your case before him. Depend only on him. There are some here who are in health and prosperity. Remember, God can reset your dial. He can move it forward. Or he can move it back. Uh, Now is the time to live for him. Not to postpone that. Maybe you've recovered from a serious illness or a close call. He resolved, Hezekiah did, now I'm going to live for the Lord. Period. What about you? Set your house in order. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, uh, if you have been delivered, uh, is your house in order? Have you followed through on the opportunity the Lord has given you? Uh, Have you faced up to your finitude, uh, to death? If you've never really surrendered your will to Christ, do that in your heart right now. Pray like this, Lord Jesus. I do surrender my will to you, and I trust you as my Savior. Come into my life. Amen.